Welcome everybody to our fifth VitaDAO panel discussions on the topic Long Live the Worm, in which we will explore the usefulness of worms to study aging and how such a research is nowadays conducted. Um, for that, we have like uh, three great experts like from uh, Singapore and uh, Germany and the Netherlands. First, we have uh, Professor, Professor Pion Schumacher, who is the director of the Genome Stability in Aging and Disease at the University of Cologne and studies the role of DNA damage in aging using the roundworm C. elegans. He also has a very great humor and a very entertaining uh, Twitter account, uh, especially for academic Twitter. Um, our second guest is Professor Eugene Beretsikov from the European, European Research Institute for the Biology of Aging in Groningen, where he leads a group that's focusing on stem cells regulation and mechanisms of regeneration, regeneration using two worms, the roundworm C. elegans and the flatworm Macrostomum lignano. And from Singapore, we are joined by Professor Jan Kruber, who is professor at Yale and US College, and also has a position at the National University of Singapore and studies the mechanisms of aging on C. elegans. He's actually a trained physicist and ended up in, aging, in the aging space because um, back then um, warp drives didn't get a lot of funding and he figured that uh, if we ever wanna explore space, we probably also have to figure out aging that we can transport uh, people over that distance. Um, thank you guys for joining us today. Um, today we will be like talking about those two types of worms, the roundworm um, C. elegans and the flatworm M. lignano. Um, I think when a lot of people actually think about worms in their everyday life, they think more like towards things of earthworms that they were in touch with when they're like uh, kids and find them a little bit dis disgusting, but they don't necessarily think about like aging research and rejuvenation. Um, could you actually make, give like a small summary how worms became so popular in the aging research or in biology in general? Björn, you want to go ahead? Sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, as the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, you made a long way from worm to man, but much within you is still worm. And uh, that's actually true because... Um, you know, the uh, worm has uh, 20,000 genes. So it's not so much fewer than we humans have, uh, but uh, many of those genes have exactly the same function. And so um, when aging research was really jump-started with genetics of aging in the early 90s, um, a fundamental discovery by uh, Cynthia Kenyon and also Tom Johnson uh, showed that a genetic alteration in a single gene could double the lifespan of this animal. And now in worms, you can study lifespan so well because on average it lives uh, uh, three weeks. It's uh, very adaptable to a lab environment. Um, and so it's really um, uh, with, with that um, landmark discovery of uh, that genes could influence lifespan and could determine the aging process, um, that really shaped the, uh, our entire understanding of the aging biology. It was no longer just a process that happens no matter what, uh, what, you, what you would do. What you, it would be not, you know, not possible to change any course of aging. And this, this discovery really has, has, um, has changed it um, to, to a level where um, in the subsequent years, it was then shown that also in other animals, the very same genes, exactly the same genes influence aging and lifespan. So whether in, in uh, Drosophila, the fruit, fruit fly, and later also in mice, 
um, the very same genetic mechanisms applied. And so therefore, um, C. elegans has from the beginning been a very important model organism. Um, it's also that the lifespan, the aging process is very plastic in the worm. So you can have naturally occurring um, stages in worms that can greatly outlive the normal lifespan. The so-called dower formation, for example, it immediately became clear that there are metabolic uh, interventions, metabolic responses that could change uh, the aging process. And so we, get, we, we learned so many things in this uh, very simple animal uh, that can be applied to human biology because this is highly conserved. Things are not invented twice in, in, the, uh, in the evolution. Um, there's a high degree of, of con conservation uh, and we can really get some very fundamental um, uh, insights uh, from this worm. And biologists always need to employ simple organisms um, to understand principles, to understand mechanisms, particularly when it comes to a, a process that is as complex as aging. That's how, there's probably hardly any other process in biology that is uh, as complex as the aging process. That's why we need a simple animal that has a high relevance to human aging. Eugene, you work a little bit on a different kind of worm that's actually longer lived than C. elegans. What's um, the background story of that one? Yeah, so, so I'm working on uh, flatworms, in particular, uh, flatworm which is called Macrostom lignanum. But um, so my initial background, I did a postdoc also in C. elegans uh, lab, and I did a lot of research before on C. elegans. And this is just, uh, I mean, as Bjorn already said, you know fantastic model and there was a lot of tools developed and everything just in a lab you can do almost any experiment you can think of it's just possible um, so all this um, uh, model organisms very important in that sense uh, but then uh, the flatworms are they have very interesting history in research so on the out hand they're actually very old models because like a planarian flatworms. Uh, Thomas Han Morgan, uh, more than 100 years ago, showed that if you take this worm, cut it in 273 pieces, I believe what he reported, then every piece can grow in a separate worm. And this activity was due to the uh, stem cells. Um, and, um, and this is the principle different between flatworms and the roundworms. So in C. elegans, all the cell, so they, they have a deterministic cell lineages. So how cells will divide once the worm is developing is always fixed. Um, um, and, uh, and this is not how it works in human, for example. In human, there are stem cells with the cells which uh, give rise to different lineages to different tissues, like there are tissue-specific stem cells. And, and similarly, in flatworms, there are also stem cells. They are called neoblasts. But in principle, exactly the same biology. So coming from the C. Um, elegans lab, but I wanted to study initially uh, uh, stem cells. And well, you cannot do much research on uh, uh, stem cells and C. elegans because we just don't have them. So and then I was looking around uh, and, and research was just picking up on uh, stem cells uh, in flatworms. Uh, but 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 the planarians, which which been around for a long time, 
due to their biology, you cannot um, uh, make transgenics, for example, and, and all the methodology is a little bit limited. So, but um, uh, this different worm, which is called Macrostom lignano, it's been described just 20 years ago. It's very new. And it actually looks, uh, from a distance at least, very much like C. elegans. It has the same size, and you also grow them in the same petri dishes or in water. And uh, uh, that looks like a very promising uh, model uh, to, to basically, we, this is something which can be like C. elegans of stem cell research. And um, so, so there is a lot of research going on in flatworms, but it's mostly focusing on the function of stem cells. So how they regenerate, how different organs are, are made, and which you know, regulatory programs involved. Uh, and research on aging in flatworms is actually it's not, not very much going on, but there are a couple of interesting uh, points. So as I mentioned, uh, like the planarians, they can regenerate if you cut them in many pieces, and uh, the, the most um, uh, widely used model uh, species, Schmittae mediterranea, so we have uh, in the lab mostly uh, very, very produced by fission. So there are two ways of reproduction, sexual and asexual. So in fission, then the worm just, you know, just tears, tears itself apart and then becomes in two worms and they grow again. So this is asexual. So, and this is how planarians mostly reproduce, although they also have sexual reproduction. But the thinking is because of this sexual reproduction, so essentially have the same worm, it just, you know, chooses a part and have you two, and then they live again. So they, in essence, they're kind of immortal. So, and the thinking is like just looking into that, there's a lot of, uh, we might find something interesting there uh, uh, in terms of aging research. As far as I know, there's not very intensive uh, research going on at the moment in this direction. So, and then the worm on which I'm working is macrostome. It has exclusively sexual reproduction. So they are hermaphrodites, same as C. elegans. So we have both male and female uh, uh, germline, but they still need to cross with each other to, to reproduce. Uh, uh, but the difference is that while C. elegans lives uh, under normal condition, like less 25 days more or less the the these worms we don't know how long they live so because when we run the lifespan experiment we give up around year three because well basically we had to use it for experiments but by that time like, uh, like half of the worms are still uh, around so this is like remarkable the small very small worm is just going on and on for uh, for years and then this is also there's a lot of cell proliferation going on, so we have to maintain it. Although uh, you can, if you look at them, you actually just by uh, visually can distinguish old worms from uh, uh, young worms. It's not that they don't age, but they age very slowly. So and that's what we are uh, trying to understand what's going on there. Uh, like a lot of topics that you just mentioned that we're probably going to yeah. unpack um, in more uh, detail during the discussion. Um, Jan, do you have like anything to add in the, to the realm of C. elegans and uh, yeah, how, so they, how do you, I mean, how you use them in the aging lab? Well, I mean, there's, there's just two things Bjorn already alluded to, but I thought I, you know, for me, these are sort of central points that 
um, made me choose that organism. As you said, I came from a physics first and I did drug design um, and then I did actually clinical sort of free radical research. And I, I, I wanted an organism that would age quickly in the lab. So, so I was realizing that doing um, clinical trials and doing oxidative damage markers and antioxidants was just incredibly slow to progress. I mean, it's very important work, but I wanted to do hypothesis driven iterative things. I had ideas and I wanted to try something. So I started C. elegans in a lab that wasn't doing it. And I'm not a developmental biologist. I'm not from a worm lab. I've never done a postdoc in a worm lab. I started them because basically I wanted something that's in a test tube, but that ages. And I think that's one of the things that maybe uh, sometimes when sort of we get accused to doing pure science with little applications by people who are maybe not that connected in the field, it's actually a really important thing to realize is that there's lots of stuff you cannot do in tissue culture in, in like, ex, you know, extracted cells. If you want to see an organism age, it's an organism wide phenotype, right? And, you know, behavior and cognition are other examples of this. And you need to do this in model organisms because doing this straight in people or even in mice just becomes many orders of magnitude slower and more expensive. So you can't ask, you know, risky questions in organisms where you can only do one experiment over a whole postdoc or PhD, right? So, so I wanted something I could do experiments with, I could ask questions and I could do experiments with, and that's why I started C. elegans. Um, so most of the stuff we do has to do with drugs and, and drug interventions uh, rather than genetics, although we do a bit of that. Uh, and I think that's another thing that's important to know for, you know, people who are maybe not as, you know, following the literature as closely, closely is, there are now several drugs that clearly work in worms and flies and mice and probably people to some extent. And, and they, you know, affect the same pathways and they have benefits in all of these organisms extend lifespan in, in, in worms and flies and mice. And, and so these pathways are, you know, as Bjorn said, ancient and conserved. And you can learn about them by doing experiments in very short-lived organisms. It's not invalid to go from there to, to, to mammals. And I think that's very important. That's one aspect, this iterative, uh, you know, asking, you know, risky questions in the simple models and then taking them to mice, doing drug trials and drug screening in simple organisms and taking them to mice. And the other thing, which Bjorn also mentioned already, is this discovery of the single gene aging or lifespan determination, it's very important to realize that we didn't, or science didn't expect that to be there, right? From an evolutionary argument, it's not trivial that there should be master regulators of longevity and lifespan. You can make a case that, you know, it's surprising that, that they're there and there are people who were advised not to do research on the genetics of aging because it was felt as, you know, being something that is not under some central genetic control. And the demonstration that it is and that these pathways exist and are conserved in itself is like completely paradigm changing. And that's another thing to realize that simple model organisms, again, are the only organisms that you might be able to, to make a really unexpected discovery because you would never do a genome-wide screen in mice for something you believe is not there. Right. And so, you know, I think it's a, it's, it's a superpower of those organisms to, to be able to ask those maybe crazy questions, which often move the whole field, including, you know, aging in mammals and people uh, forward. And I think that's, that's the thing that worms have demonstrated and in, in, in other invertebrate models have demonstrated to be, you know, time and again, leading in. And I think, yeah, that's, that's why they're exciting to me. So we have like now those two different worm models right now. They are, have some similarities, but are also quite different from each other. 
if we like go back in time, when did those guys actually split on like the phylogenetic tree? I mean, how how related are they actually to each other on a on a timeline of like genetic similarities and evolutionary principles? Um, yeah. So this is this is very you know, ancient split. So it's completely different phylogenetic branches. So like the uh, this elegance actually belongs to the uh, the branch which is called exosaur and like all the arthropods there. So basically all the animals which have something to do with exoskeleton, like in elegance has a cuticle which is also kind of uh, exoskeleton. And the flatworms is a very different branch. And I mean, so, so essentially flatworms and, 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 and roundworms, there's more distance between them between, between C. elegans and Drosophila, so to say. I mean, then they split. So, uh, and um, so, and then the flatworms themselves are very diverse uh, clade. So there are a lot of also parasitic worms there and, 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 and a lot of, a lot of variation. So, um, and uh, so what's interesting is that the macrostomum, this and uh, this worm is actually at the base of all the clade. So that it's called the so-called so the more basal flatworm compared to planarians, for example, meaning that actually it has maybe somewhat more similarities with human than other flat, more derived, more, more evolved flatworms would have. And I uh, know maybe Bjorn and Jan can add to this more. So uh, I think what's really interesting is that there's so much diversity in nature. And that's something we learn that the, the more we understand about biology, um, the more we can appreciate how complex it is. It's like, um, you know, coming from a world where we only know that Earth, knew that Earth existed, and now we see whole galaxies when we just, you know, dip deeper into it. And the diversity in nature is just incredible and extraordinary. Um, and and it's, it's on the other side very depressing that we are eliminating so many species every day that uh, you know that we have an impact on on Earth as you as humankind. Um, more than we actually understand and explore and identify. And uh, nature is so rich. And um, the more we dig into it, the more fascinating it is. And the more we understand also about us as humans, because um, we are part of this evolution. We are part of this, this, this uh, um, you know, atlas of nature. And um, I, it's been in recent years. So there are some model organisms like C. elegans that are used in uh, that are incredibly well, and yet we still find completely unexpected new biological processes. Um, but at the same time, there are many species we know very little about. Um, and uh, in recent years, indeed, there have been you know, more non-standard organisms that then are somewhat limited when you see, when you think about methodologies, uh, but also modern approaches like omics methods that or CRISPR-Cas even that can be applied to a large variety of animals, even if you don't know very much about them. Um, so yeah, we have a diversification also of model systems, and I think that's exciting. But at the same time, we have with C. elegans an animal that is so well understood, so well characterized. We know every single gene of it. 
Um, and we have a plethora of experimental methods. We have a lifespan that, you know, uh, you can actually do aging in 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 uh, you know in a in, in a master thesis project, right? Um, and um, and and yet we gain completely novel insight. Like for example, um, how different cell types communicate with each other, under which influences they 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 stand when they are part of an organism. And it also emphasizes how important it is if we want to understand a process as complex as aging, we must understand it in the context of an animal, not just in the context of a single cell um, of an isolated molecule, but instead, elegance um, really, as, as Jan uh, um, uh, put it, it's a, it's a test tube in an organism. Um, and so uh, we can really explore how, for example, a germline um, can influence, can impact the aging process of, of the organism, which we know that this happens also in humans, but it's so complex, we have no, we have no clue how to study it even. Um, but in the elegance, we also still haven't understood the, 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 the complexity of the, the, the interactions between, let's say, the germline and the somar. Um, but yet, we have uncovered that the principle exists. And um, so that's why the standard organisms are incredibly important. But then also going into non-standard um, uh, organisms to, for example, um, uh, with, with uh, Eugene's uh, very exciting um, uh, you know, flatworm that allows now to understand regeneration better. Um, I think it's very exciting to have these, you know, these these connections between standard organisms where we know a lot about and non-standard organisms where we can learn something that is a specific adaptation. But usually these mechanisms, even the regeneration of uh, an, an organism that is highly regenerative, um, the mechanisms that govern that are usually very conserved mechanisms. Um, they are not invented twice. They, they've been usually conserved. And so we can understand principles. We can understand uh, um, no, novel uh, mechanisms, novel phenomenon in biology. And the more we understand, the better we can also address um, diseases that are, again, governed by the same genetic mechanisms. Yeah, maybe just to expand a bit on what Bjorn said, because I also just uh, yeah, wanted to say the same, that despite all the divergence and the uh, ancient the splits and, uh, and everything, it is very remarkable how much of a core system is actually conserved between you know, worms and flies and the human. And that's also the reason, for example, what Jan has mentioned, why drugs, the same drugs do the same things in worms and in mice and the human. And um, also what Bjorn said, yeah, uh, until very recently, like until 10, 15 years ago, there was C. elegans, Drosophila, mouse, and human cell lines. That, that's more or less about it, about in red, when it was uh, about the biomedical research. And now with all the technologies, we can do many, many more different models and dig in all to the diversity and you know, learn from like what evolution invented in different uh, uh, directions, what we can use of it. At the same time, so this is now much easier with all the sequencing and CRISPR-Cas and that. But still, not so easy because even within flatworms, even within macrostome, we have like 
200 species now described. And you can go and you know dig them in the, in the beach because that's where they live, in the sand. And the problem is, if you want to do experiments on them, well, they should behave well in the lab. So you should be able to culture them and uh, propagate and it should, shouldn't die and it shouldn't have infections and everything. And this is very limiting. That's why the true models where you can not just glimpse what they're doing, but actually also manipulate and then study. This is more limited. That's why still we don't see an like, explosion of, the, uh, of all the model organisms. A little bit uh, will be still confounding just by the nature. Yeah. I mean, just again to, to bring up or to re-emphasize some of the, the same ideas. I mean, when I started, I was looking, I wasn't sort of cut into either worms or flies or mice. I was looking for some organism to do some experiments in. And I you know, started working on worms and I went to a conference and I uh, met um, Leonard Hayflick. And he was saying, oh, why are you doing work on these short-lived organisms? You should be working on these long-lived and extremely long-lived and negligibly senescent organisms. And at the time, you know, being a, you know, this was a side project that had a daytime postdoc to do biomarkers. I was like, I'm not, they don't even know to start with like, you know, rockfish or, or any of these other organisms in the wild. But looking at it from today's perspective, I think, yes, it is still much, much harder. And it's hard to know whether culture conditions are optimal and you have a normal lifespan in the lab and all of these sort of things. And if you have extremely long-lived organisms, of course, you can't even culture them in the lab. They live hundreds of years. But it's really exciting to see, to me, it's very exciting to see the tools being available to do, you know, much more meaningful science in, in those non-standard organisms. And I think those are complementary things. You, you can do discovery you know, in, in, in organisms, even that you can only explore in the wild, and then you can bring them back to, to, to organisms that you have maybe genetic control over to ask questions regarding those hits that you have. And I think that's very exciting. And, you know, if I were to start over again today, or maybe even today, um, you know, I would look in, into those things as well. It's just, it is, everything is 10 times harder than when you just order out of a catalog, all the tools to do anything you want. Right. Um, so, yeah, we wrote a grant on, uh, you know, negligibly senescent turtles trying to do, uh, you know, methylation clocks and, 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 and radio dating in the wild on them. It wasn't funded, but those things you can now do. And it, I wouldn't even have known where to start, you know, when I started on the C. elegans. So it is an exciting time to branch out a little bit from the, from the spectrum of the things that we all know the best. So maybe... Maybe thinking about it, you have like um, the flatworms that can re regenerate and rejuvenate them by themselves, and C. elegans and the roundworms don't really have that cap capability. But C. elegans is short-lived, and we can modulate their lifespan very well with uh, small molecules and drugs. But is there like a common point where we actually could, in a way, try to make C. elegans regenerate like the flatworms? Or is this like, uh, can we learn in a way by combining those two, two model organisms in a, in a funky Frankenstein way and uh, make them long-lived and regenerating at the same time? So I think there are two aspects here. So one aspect is what we can learn about the um, post-mitotic cells, so cells that never divide again, that are formed in embryogenesis and never ever are being regenerated. Um, this is the somar of C. elegans, and that's the neurons in us humans. So if we want to understand how we can maintain 
uh, neurons and there are other cell types in the humans as well that, uh, that do that and they are very, very heavily involved in age-related diseases. So maintaining post-mitotic cells that have no regenerative capacity is absolutely essential if we want to tackle an issue like neurodegeneration, dementia, Alzheimer's disease. We must understand how a, a cell can be maintained for 70 years, 80 years, 100 years. And this is what our neurons do in humans. And uh, um, you know, transfer to a lifespan of a worm, this is exactly what neurons in the worms do. In fact, when uh, Sidney Brenner introduced first uh, C. elegans as a model system, he thought this would be the yeast of the neurobiology field. Because uh, you know, back then, and this was in the 60s, uh, yeast was, a, was the model for eukaryotic cell and uh, C. elegans really became also a really workhorse for neurobiology because a third of all the cells of, of C. elegans um, are neurons, in fact. So uh, as a proportion, they have even more neurons than, than as humans. Um, so we can understand a lot of essential insights about how we can maintain functionality and that we can, and there I think C. elegans um, will be able to provide a lot of new insight into that. So I would really propose that if we want to tackle neurodegeneration, we should really go to the worm and try to understand how can neurons be, be functionally maintained. And I think um, everybody, we have now a situation currently where big pharma is getting out of dementia because um, uh, it's, it's been too difficult there are a lot of limitation in mouse disease models for dementia. Um, we need to go back and understand the biology of how a neuron can be maintained. That's the one thing. Now about regeneration. We all know that there is in every organism a mechanism of complete and entire rejuvenation, a natural mechanism, and that is the fertilization of an egg, the germline. The germline of uh, C. elegans has been maintained uh, for 100 million years. The germline of modern Homo sapiens has been maintained for 200,000 years. And we got it from our ancest uh, ancestor species. So, um, and it's rejuvenated in every generation, completely and entirely. And uh, so we can study this process even in, in, in C. elegans. How is it possible? How is it possible that there's an immortal type of cell that contains all genetic information, everything to build an organism, every, to build every single cell of an organism? Uh, and the germ cells can do that. So um, there are also stem cells in, even in the worm, they are in the germline. They're germ stem cells that exist. So uh, yes, we don't have somatic stem cells. That is true. And that's why I, I think it's fascinating to work on a, uh, on, a, on a platform for somatic regeneration. But we can learn a lot about regeneration in German cells. That is the perfect regeneration without any negative impact that works. Um, perfect, nearly perfect repair, selection for the most stable genomes. Um, and so I think we can really learn a lot about that, um, even in C. elegans. But of course, I completely agree um, with Eugene that um, 
other organisms that have somatic regeneration are also very interesting and we will learn a lot from them. Yeah, I mean, uh, to this, I mean, the rejuvenation story is actually something that blew my mind uh, because I came from a damage accumulation from a free radical lab at that time. And I remember the, the paradigm that I was thinking and was always damage prevention. It was like reduce damage, the antioxidants, like turnover. Um, and then uh, you, you get this effect where you think, well, how is the germline avoiding, you know, intergenerational accumulation of some sort of damage? And recently, there's these, uh, this paper by Cynthia Canyon's group that shows that uh, the oocytes actually remove uh, aggregated protein, right, when they get fertilized. So they actually accumulate protein aggregates like the neurons do, like, you know, postmetodic tissues in the, uh, in the organism do. But they have a mechanism to just completely clear this. Uh, and so in my, that sort of blew my mind in some ways, because in my mind, it was always a one-way road. It's like, you can try to protect the tissue and prevent damage and maybe select the most functional ones, but that there's an evolved mechanism to just turn it back to zero. Uh, and that you can watch it in the worm in real time was really a fascinating uh, result for me. And, 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 you know, and that comes maybe in the whole aging field with the realization that just slowly like reducing damage accumulation across life isn't really the only option. There are things that seem to be reversing age dependent detrimental changes in organisms uh, and that that's a feasible, feasible target at least. And I think that's, that's, you know, very fascinating. And again, something that I don't think we would have expected had we not had the ability to watch it in situ in an organism happening. Yeah. So Max, to, to back to your, question if you can make a Frankenstein elegance which regenerates this would mean that the somatic cells to make them uh, start dividing again and uh, well I'm not sure if it's possible because I mean it's so very different biology it might be possible I mean but but also it's not also the goal here and um, uh, well in terms of aging research at least it might be interesting for the cell cycle studies and everything. Uh, so, but what we are doing uh, is basically leveraging, you know, the, 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 the strong uh, features of both models because the elegance, because it's uh, short-lived, so you actually can do experiments concerning the lifespan. Uh, Macrostome is long-lived, so you actually can glimpse which mechanisms probably uh, might be responsible for that. But testing in macrostome bag would be very difficult. So what we actually do in the genes which you discover that might be related to, uh, to aging, to maintaining the stem cells. So we, and for now we focus on, this, on the very conserved genes. So these genes in macrostome, they also present in elegance and in human. But we, for example, know that they are upregulated with age in macrostome and they have some protective functions, it seems. So what we're doing, we're actually taking these genes and trying to overexpress them in C. elegans and see if that extends lifespan. So essentially, the overexpression screens, which are possible not in many organisms and not in many complex organisms, and a little bit of a pain to do. So not many overexpression screens has been done so far. So what we, you know, we're doing a little bit of that with, uh, with good preliminary results. Uh, so basically, we leveraging a different biology to, to achieve these goals. Yeah. When we actually look at those organisms, what's actually, how 
much can we actually extend lifespan in either of the organisms or how often can we actually chop the worm into pieces before it says i don't want to regenerate anymore are there like in a way like limits to to either of those um so in flatworms we so far we haven't seen a limit also so in planarians you can you can do it you know continuously that's that's why we are like considering mortal uh in macrostomum because it does age and the but the very old animals still regenerate although it's less efficiency but you 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 can push it pretty far maybe maybe not indefinitely because and also maybe because they more uh it has to do maybe with sexual reproduction and because and because of that the organism is built slightly different uh and uh well this elegance can be extended but I don't know, I don't remember what's the longest lifetime extension in elegance. So one um, of the things about that it depends a little bit on the um, what trade-offs you accept, right? So there are some strains that live up to ten times longer, but then they are also very developmentally delayed and very growth delayed. And so the question is, are you slowing down development and aging and growth and all processes? But the IGF mutants, the, the insulin-like growth factor mutants, the original uh, aging mutations are double quite easily. And then they synergize with some, uh, for instance, uh, reduced translation. Uh, and then they you get like a threefold lifespan extension relatively straightforwardly. Um, and of course, you know, because of this, this is something we are interested in, because of these sort of more longer um, or larger effects are often to do with combinations of interventions, either several genes or different drugs. Of course, there's really no answer to this because it's very hard to do uh, combinations of things, right? If you want to try every two gene knockdowns, for instance, or knockouts, then you're having, you know, the genome squared things to test. And even in C. elegans, that's infeasible. So um, so what the, the, the upper limit would be is probably hard to say, but even from the limited scope of what uh, people have uh, managed to try, uh, you know, three, six and tenfold have been reported, um, which is quite, you know, substantial compared to what we, for instance, currently get in mice, right? Or, in, you know. Pion, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, so what's what's really fascinating is why, why is lifespan in C. elegans so plastic? Why can it be so much ex extended, um, as, as, as Jan said, uh, so twofold, threefold? Uh, while it stays actually healthy, these two, threefold um, uh, extensions, that means health span extension. So well, it's exactly what we are. Uh, what we would be very jealous of having as humans, right? Where we can finally extend our health span and not only get older with, with disease. Um, and uh, the, the fascinating here thing here is again in, in the biology that um, it's a natural adaptation of this animal. This animal um, encounters in the wild uh, frequently starvation. It really lives in a bust and boom uh, uh, economy. Of you know, sometimes it has uh, food without with, with without end, right? Um, and uh, very very often it has no food at all and has to starve. And uh, so it has adapted to that because that's been really selecting you know the 
the gene pool of this animal. And so um, essentially it can survive under starvation conditions for extended periods of time. It is a really fascinating thing about the worm. The, the, the most natural thing of, of, of doing that is the so-called dower stage. And uh, that's very much related to these DAF genes, dower formation, DAF, right? And the insulin like uh, um, uh, growth factor signaling, these are all DAF mutants, because what they, what they normally do in the, in the wild is they regulate this dower stage. The dower stage is an adaptation uh, during development where this animal can now sustain without uh, eating a single drop of food for months, uh, for months on end. And um, uh, it, it's very active, very mobile during that time. Um, it lives from fat storage and things like that. Um, and uh, then, and here comes the really fascinating thing. So it lives on for months in this dower stage, you know, it, there's no really apparent sign of aging there. Maybe it's a little bit aging, but really not very much that for sure, not very much. But then once it's then uh, senses food, it switches back. It becomes a normal worm, a normal adult worm. It has exactly the same lifespan as if it had been just born uh, uh, two days earlier. And it completely rejuvenates. So using the very same cells that were uh, were born months ago, the very same cells live now a completely normal lifespan of an adult worm. The germ cells that had been dormant in this animal, they regenerate, make a perfectly normal germline that gives uh, rise to as many offspring as if these germlines, germ cells had just been a couple of days old. So there is uh, a naturally occurring example of complete rejuvenation. And this complete rejuvenation affects both permanent, terminally differentiated cell types, neurons. A neuron all of a sudden is like a young, young neuron, although it's the very, very same cell. And a regeneration of stem cells in the germline. So if you want any more perfect example of complete rejuvenation, um, uh, I think uh, C. elegans provides an amazing example for that. And again, all these mechanisms that regulate, for example, this dower stage, recovery from dower stage, they are genes that are highly conserved. All these processes that play a role there, um, this metabolic adaptation, the sensing, the neuronal sensing of environmental factor and then responding to environmental uh, cha uh, challenges, reprogramming uh, um, uh, the, the metabolome, all these things, uh, maintaining cellular function, rejuvenating, all these mechanisms are also present in humans. And we need to figure out how can we understand these natural mechanisms and employ those uh, for rejuvenation. So maybe, maybe I can uh, also add to Bjorn's uh, so the dower adaptation. So in the macrostomum, there is a similar adaptation, completely different mechanism. Also, the point is to survive with periods when there is no food. And macrostomus does it differently. So they basically, so they have growth, degrowth. If there is no food, they will just start degrowing, it'll just eat kind of uh, itself. So it will, all the gonads, everything disappear, it will shrink, it will become very small. And then in this stage, it also can just without food, 
you know, swim around for months. So then if you provide food, then it starts eating and grows back. So and then the stem cells also reconstitute germline and everything. And that's also why essentially in flatworms, what's interesting is the stem cells, uh, they kind of have a, also germline properties. For example, one of the, you know, the PV uh, protein, which is important for maintaining stem cells, uh, of germline in, in, in more organisms. In flatworms, it's also expressed in this uh, stem cells. So they, they really, all stem cells have like germline properties uh, in flatworms. But so back to this growth degrowth, and I suspect it also would have the same rejuvenation effects, but we don't know yet because we haven't done it and nobody has done it yet, simply because not too many people working yet on this model. So when we look at, we can use those model organisms to understand in a way like the genetic impact of onto aging, but um, we have like those hallmarks of aging, which also like tackle like nutrient sensing pathways and mitochondrial dysfunction and the like. Can we study all the hallmarks of aging in C. elegans or, is, or, or like um, uh, flatworms, or is there like uh, one that we just cannot do in, in those? So, oh, I mean, one thing, sorry, John, you want to go? No? Go ahead. I can uh, go ahead. On a personal level, I started out with on mitochondrial uh, DNA because the paradigm at the time was I had a grant on sarcopenia and mitochondrial DNA deletions. And, and while a lot of things, of course, mitochondria are incredibly conserved and mitochondrial biology is conserved and, and, and free radicals are being made and damage is being made and all of these things you can definitely study in C. elegans. One of the things we sort of eventually convinced ourselves was that um, for mitochondrial DNA deletion to slowly amplify in the mitochondria to be to take over a muscle cell and lead to uh, you know the DNA deficiency, mitochondrial DNA deficiency and, and metabolic defects, there isn't just enough time in 30 days for that stochastic process to happen. So we were trying very hard to quantify this as a function of aging and then look at various interventions to figure out whether you know the IGF pathway slow aging would modulate this process and they would accumulate the uh, DNA deletion, mitochondrial DNA deletions more slowly. And we did like various techniques to measure those. And, and we could never see a robust increase in these deletions with time, like you see in, in mouse muscle, for instance, or in human muscle, more importantly. And eventually we did some computer simulations trying to figure out how long it would take for a random mutation to take over a cell and then clonally expand. And so we found out that that takes years and the worms just don't have years and the metabolism isn't that much faster. So you know, they don't go through 10 years of like mitochondrial turnover in, in, in four days. And so, you know, my conclusion from that work was that that specific aspect is really a private mechanism of aging in long-lived animals that, you know, like the slow accumulation of abnormal mitochondrial DNA. It doesn't mean there can't be deletions that are formed by some mechanism, but like the slow accumulation of a random mutation until it becomes dominant really is something that happens in long-lived animals. But you just have to know, you know, what mechanisms are conserved and what are not. That's part of the job to figure out, you know, again, um, you know, neurobiology and protein aggregation appears to be very conserved, right? So those things are um, probably universal. So it's a question which mechanisms are public and private. And I think that's, uh, that's part of the job to figure that out. Yeah, I think this is this is a, a good point. But then, what we, for example, observed is that in 
during neurodegeneration, which, uh, for example, happens in humans as a consequence um, of the neuropair defects, the very same neurodegeneration happens in worms, in the neurons, very, very fast. Um, and this is associated, uh, we also see mitochondrial dysfunction uh, associated with that. So there are certainly in terms of um, the, the you know, maintenance of mitochondria and dysfunction of mitochondria, there's, this is already present. Now, one, one hallmark that you wouldn't immediately associate with worms would be the cellular senescence, right? Because you would think it's post-mitotic. How could there be senescence? And uh, now, how, how would you look at senescence? You would look at it, of course, for example, in telomere-deficient telomere uh, worms. And that is something that was pioneered by Sean Ahmed about uh, 20 years ago in worms, uh, where you would immediately think telomeres and worms, why, why would that play a role? Because we know from already the name has been mentioned, uh, uh, Leonard Hayflake, that uh, telomere shortening is usually leading to, um, uh, you know, to uh, cellular senescence, meaning that cells don't stop dividing after many generations. But now you have a post-mitotic organism. So would there be any consequence of not maintaining telomeres? And um, there is. And the senescence is occurring in germ cells. There's germ cell senescence. So the, 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 the thing is you do get senescence over the generations because in every time that the germ cells proliferate and make... Um, you know, generate um, uh, uh, new progeny, every time the germ cell, the telomeres get shorter if there's no telomerase. Um, so very, very similar as, as, as humans. Um, there is uh, senescence as an outcome of uh, telomere dysfunction. And then you can study with the same paradigm, you can study additional factors, you can study how that works and how that impacts the stability of genomes. Um, and so, essentially, for all these um, for all these aspects that happen in in uh, human aging, uh, you have the equivalent. Uh, you have the mechanisms already present. The physiological outcomes they are often different. Just like when you think about the disease of aging. So, for example, one uh, major disease that's not often uh, comes up your mind the first uh, uh, as as first when you think about aging is cancer. The biggest risk factor for cancer is aging. No other factor is, 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 has as much of an influence on, on cancer than aging in humans. Uh, and the reason for that is clear because um, cancer is uh, caused by mutations that are a result of DNA damage. And these accumulate in aging, invariably. You can really draw a line with you. The older you get, the more mutations you have in your somatic genomes. And the higher risk your risk is of developing cancer. Now, worms don't get cancer. There are some tumors in the germline that can form, but cancer is a very complex disease. But then when we look at the mechanisms of cancer, all of these mechanisms are present in the worm. For example, uh, oncogenes, one of the most prominent oncogenes in, uh, um, in humans is, is RAS, uh, it, a signaling molecule that, 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 that drives cells to proliferate the very same RAS is present in, in worms. The very same mutation that causes um, oncogenic transformation in humans, um, the same RAS mutation is, uh, has been found in C. elegans and it leads indeed to extra proliferation. 
and a phenotype that's you know, very well characterized. Um, so yes, you can study even oncogenes. You can even um, study tumor suppressor genes, uh, P53, for example, um, that exists in C. elegans, does exactly the same what it does in humans. So we can understand the mechanisms, um, the, the, the uh, mechanisms of about, um, about any age-related disease, be it neurodegeneration, be it cancer. Yes, these pathologies, these, these very complex physiological alterations in the human body, that you, 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 of course you don't get, right? I mean, that's also why you need mammalian disease models. No question about that. They have their value. But if you want to understand the mechanisms that underpin uh, these, these processes, these very highly complex diseases of aging, then the worm is a fabulous uh, star, uh, point to understand the mechanisms, to understand principles, to gain really the, um, uh, the, the understanding of how the mechanism acts in the context of an organism. And that really provides us with the understanding that we really need and that we are still lacking about the aging process and about the diseases of aging and all of the diseases of aging. So we really need our um, C. elegans model is the discovery science tool. And that's what we need uh, for our fundamental understanding that directly informs us um, not only about human biology, but also about human disease. So to continue, um, well, so worms are great and they of course like them, uh, but we're also not saying like you can still study everything. So of course there are some limitations. So another limitation uh, when it comes to the study of uh, human aging could be, but also not complete limitation is the uh, inflammation because so basically because worms just don't have this immune system so they have only innate response so some aspects yes that worm would be less suitable that's for sure but again as uh bjorn just said yeah as a discovery tool to follow up in uh, more complex not more complex but in uh, mammalian models later that's that's the the research path we see yeah and and just in that same context you know i think there's a which I believe is a misconception that you can learn really about aging by starting from an age-dependent disease and going backwards. And I think that's a very long-winded way of learning about aging is to start from a human pathology and then to you know, walk backwards until you get to the underlying mechanism that really drives this. And I think model organisms are naturally adopted to doing the opposite thing, to start from the fundamental mechanism and then figure out how this manifests in this disease or that disease. Um, and, and so you don't have to reproduce the exact pathology, you know, plaque in the, in the vascular system or something in order to learn about the fundamental mechanisms that you would eventually arrive at if you walk back from the disease for long enough. Uh, but I, that's not the preferred or in my, I don't think that's the faster, better way of getting at it to start walking back from the disease. I think there's a huge value in starting from the basic principles and walking upwards to the failure. So even for the for the immunity, so that's that's fascinating. So just um, uh, I, I just you know talked about uh, senescence, how you would not immediately associate it with worms, and then you discover it's there. Also, immune aging is actually present already in the, in the worm. Yes, it has a very rudimentary type of immune system compared to this hugely complex human uh, immune system, for sure, of course. But for example, we recently, when we um, generated an aging clock in C. elegans um, uh, that was based on, on gene expression on transcriptomes, 
Um, we actually saw that that uh, these clock is really made of the immune response of, of C. elegans. So the immune system appears to be the major driving factor of, of the aging clock in, in worms. Then we also saw um, uh, um, a couple of years ago that there's actually inflammation as part of the immune activation of the innate immune response in worms. So they are, they, if you have an immune response in a single intestinal cell in the worm, the entire animal will die if, they can, if it can switch off the, the uh, innate immune response. That started in a one single cell. And we, so we, can, we identify the new mechanisms of also anti-inflammatory responses um, that would be very interesting now actually to implement then in, in human inflammation where we currently have very, very limited treatment options for inflammatory diseases in, in humans. And even there, where you think initially think you cannot possibly study this in worms, and then you find some very fundamental mechanism, and usually these mechanisms are conserved and they will play a major role. So it's an amazing discovery tool. Uh, I would say for all hallmarks of aging, with of course the limitations that if you want to study a complex human disease, you, you, you have physiological alterations in humans, fine, but you want to understand, discover the mechanisms, so study C. elegans for that. As you just mentioned, it's like C. elegans is like a great discovery tool that yielded a lot of insights, but how... What about translating those discovery then to human health research? Um, what's like usually the process involved there? How long does it take until we find something cool and see elegance that we can say, okay, humans benefit from that as well? And how often, what is the likelihood of that actually happening? So I can say that every time when we discover something in C. elegance and then we go into mammalian disease models, we find it's exactly conserved. It's exactly the same process, even from things you would not even <laughs> wouldn't have imagined. So yes, the, the implementation is very clear. And um, even something that, I mean, if you think about RNAi, RNA interference, when that was discovered in C. elegans, people thought, this is a really, really private worm thing that has no relevance for anything on earth. And then it was discovered uh, years later that the exact same mechanisms exist in, in humans. Um, and, um, and, and so um, when we go into the mammalian system, we find it's conserved. Um, and also, I think we can, it should be accelerated. I think there should be a momentum of acceleration. Um, I believe that the modern methods of omics will allow us to um, more quickly um, evaluate um, mechanisms than also in humans even. But there we need a lot more effort in really, you know, generating human data. And I think it's it's complex from many aspects of the regulatory aspects and stand in the way. Um, but I think um, we can, I, I'm not aware of anything that is very worm specific and would not have um, uh, if it has really been tested in mammals, would not be applicable in mammals as well. Yeah, I, I, I would like to make you know a related point, which is that if you look actually at the exactly RNAi is one example, RNA interference discovered in worms, uh, you know, turns out to be present in 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 in, in humans. Uh, the role and existence of aging pathways to regulate lifespan clearly conserved the drugs that we are currently using 
papamycin, all of these things, invertebrate models, not necessarily worms, but certainly models as far removed from humans um, as uh, as worms would be. Everything we know about the cell cycle, if you think about that, is probably you know originally yeast research. Um, and you know apoptosis uh, itself, you know, first discovered in worms. So, you know, I would be if I want to be a little bit provocative, I would say almost anything that you do possibly translate in the clinic today was first discovered in the simple model organisms. It's like that's where we find everything, and then we do confirmation in mice and humans many years later. So, you know, the the sort of question which asks, you know, oh, what is this good for us? It's like, well, everything you're currently translating, you got from the simple models, like literally everything. Then you pointed something you've never been, okay, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but the vast majority of the knowledge first gets found in organisms where you can quickly discover knowledge um, and has been for the last hundred over years, right? Um, genetics and flies, like you could go endlessly go on, 1920s, right? So the point about this is it isn't like the question of when will you finally translate model organism research into people? What knowledge that we are translating has not originally come from these organisms? But then the other question is why do we not get you know, more efficacious aging interventions more quickly in the clinic today? And I don't think that's something that has to do with the time of going from worm to people or from fly to people or from whatever to people. This has really to do with just basically doing the paradigm and trying to do anything about aging. Right. It's not like we don't have ideas what could be done. We just don't even know how to try it in humans, how to translate. So it doesn't matter you discover it in fly or in, or in mice. It would take equally long before somebody could actually do it in people uh, because we haven't got a system for it. We don't know how to do the ethics. We don't know how to even approach this. You, have, you can't, you know, tame is still not hasn't really happened yet. Right. Uh, so, I mean, like the interventions that target aging per se are really hard to fund and to get permission ethics for and and to run. And so it's really difficult to do this, but I don't think it's because worms and flies and you know yeast are too far from humans. It's because even if we knew for sure what would work, we wouldn't know how to actually translate it right now. Yeah, maybe to add, um, well, exactly for this reason that we don't know how to approach aging directly in clinic. So that's also uh, a lot of studies still but we know how to approach different diseases. So, and this is where we still how it works. Although it's maybe not the optimal way. I mean, half of the Eriba or many people like work on cancer, which is you know, not aging itself, it's consequence of aging. Uh, but so, so in essential and so the worms and I was, you know, model organisms I, in the first place, discovery tools, and then how to translate it. First, what you're getting is the information, what's going on, what's the mechanism. And then, then you, once you have this information, then you can look how this can be uh, well applied in human, but not necessarily exactly in the same way how it was done in model, but as long as you know what needs to be done. So then particular you know, experiments can be designed. Well, thanks. We also start getting like some questions from the audience that are like relate to what we were just speaking about. So I like uh, pop them in quickly. Um, one is from Alexander, and um, he says, thank you for your talk. And does germ cell line senescence have SASP? And what would be the role of it in C. elegans? Would it affect non-germ cells? Could senescence propagate over the post-mitotic cells? I guess that's related to what Pjorn was uh, talking five minutes ago. Fascinating question. Thank you. Um, so indeed, um, when germ cells experience DNA damage, they uh, produce... Innate immune factors. 
and they have a consequence on the on the whole organism because the whole organism then starts producing these factors and um, they elevate stress resistance in the entire animal and that's something um, uh, we, we we discovered a few years ago that that actually extends for a productive lifespan of the organism because it gives the germ cells then time to repair and then re, um, uh, resume offspring generation later in their lives. Uh, and that looks pretty similar to what also senescent cells are doing. Then there, of course, they do it chronically. This uh, beneficial uh, response to germ cell DNA damage, uh, the germline DNA damage induced um, uh, systemic stress resistance. We saw that's a transient uh, response that is fully beneficial for um, the survival of the animal, the endurance of the soma, the extension of reproductive lifespan. Um, in senescent cells, this type of response is probably um, more adapted to become chronic. And uh, chronic DNA damage responses, they are um, then uh, very detrimental, um, probably and to some extent because they then produce um, these inflammatory cytokines in humans um, that can damage other cells, they can damage uh, tissues, attack tissues, um, and the issue is chronic responses. Transiently, the, the very same responses might be actually be very beneficial. We know that, for example, in, even in, in mammals for um, uh, senescence-associated secreted factors that it can have beneficial effects during, say, wound healing, for example. And so we need to better understand what are the beneficial transient adaptations and what are the mall adaptations that lead then to the chronic um, uh, in, inflammation to the chronic secretion of inflammatory responses. And also in senescence, cellular senescence is mostly associated with responses to DNA damage that just then becomes chronic and then becomes detrimental. Um, so uh, these mechanisms are probably, again, very highly conserved. Um, the mediators of that, they are uh, very diverse, um, but the principles that we can learn um, are, are very conserved indeed. Well, thanks for answering that. Um, we have a question from Anikrit. There are documented issues with the reproducibility of worm research, just like for mouse research. What steps are you taking to address this? What steps are the journals taking? I mean, there's issues with reproducibility between labs in almost any domain. Um, and I think the answers are pretty much the same uh, in every field, I mean, you need to do uh, independent verification of results. You need to repeat other people's, you know, experiments and try to get them to work. You try to standardize conditions. You need to publish all your results, your raw data, your, the, you know, all the details of how you're doing things. There can't be magic source and secret ingredients. Um, and and you know, that's just how the scientific method works. Again, my answer to this would be. Uh, the scientific method per se is self-correcting, but it doesn't avoid first making the mistake. It corrects it, right? So the reason that we know about these issues with reproducibility, reproducibility is that people try to reproduce. And if they can't, then they talk about it. And eventually there's consensus and we figure things out. So I think that's a, it's, it's an annoying thing when it happens to something you work on and, you know, you're trying to reproduce something and it doesn't reproduce and you lose a year in the lab. But you know, it's it's essentially, I would say, a thing the scientific method has solved, right? That's what peer review and reprodu reproduction and talking to each other is for. 
And, and I think it's, you know, by and large working exceptionally well at correcting those issues compared to, for instance, research done, you know, in secrecy, right? Like you look at military research, for instance, like doing the Cold War, it's hilarious, right? It's, it's really funny what, what was funded when there wasn't that mechanism in place because it was a single organization. So I think the scientific community is actually really good at this. That's my take on it. Yeah, I guess the thing is also that like biology is always surprising and has like a lot of messy stuff going in it uh, that uh, you really have to decipher first. And it's, it's, it's not an easy task. Um, but I mean, uh, yeah, you guys trying to understand that. And I think there are like many people in the world. And I think together we will uh, go the path and, uh, and solve that somehow. Um, another question is that, um, also, have you considered testing compounds in multiple warm species to improve robustness? Uh, well, it's the elegance, like you could try them in different mutants, but I guess, yeah, you could find closely related species and try it. This is like I'm, something that uh, in, in flatworms is done more commonly. You mentioned there are like uh, 200 different species, Eugene. Yeah, so what I also said, you know, most of these 200 different species, you cannot culture in a lab. Yeah. Oh, I mean, in principle, if you spend 10 years figuring out how to culture, probably you could, because I mean, it's just figuring out the conditions. So, and um, 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 so in principle, let's so we're like developed models on which mostly done, you know, testing the same thing on a very similar species, uh, would address actually the question, what, what are the difference between species if it doesn't work rather than, uh, and if it works also doesn't uh, bring much. Well, it, of course, I mean, it's extra confirmation, but then you better do it not on a different worm, but in the fly, for example. Yeah, we, we have done this, we, we do this almost routinely when we have a really interesting thing that we can do in flies that we also do this in flies because we have a friendly fly group right next door. And, you know, they're hundreds of millions of years separated from each other evolutionarily, you know, not as far as uh, flatworms maybe, but that certainly suggests that these mechanisms are ancient, right? Uh, when they're conserved, which, you know, again, the, the drugs we worked in the lab, many of them perfectly reproduced between flies and worm and even the interactions between them reproduced between flies and worm. I just want to add to that, that often I think it's, it's um, Overappreciate whether you you know you reproduce the same finding in different species. I mean, yes, this is something that you know it's usually conserved. It can be validated. But what's more important is actually then to identify the mechanisms and have an independent means of validation. For example, if you show me that a drug extends lifespan in worms, uh, it's more important to figure out how does this drug do that than whether it does that also in two other species. Um, and then, you know, validate the target of the drug, whether this is really the critical target um, and the genetics of worms, of course, allow you to do that. Um, and I think that's more important to really have independent type of evidence that you found the right mechanisms, um, because otherwise it's, it, uh, it, it remains uh, a bit correlative between the treatment and, the, and an effect. So I think mechanisms are more important than uh, whether you can, you know, go through a zoo of different animals and you know have the same correlative data. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess that is that is makes sense. And like like we said in the lab, we have like different kind of 
animals that are already used and like just using like a partnering species as like only very close to what we already tested is probably like not the best best amount of funding used for that research. Um, we've got like a questions regarding uh, ethics um, of how much is the ethical limitation of running trials of aging drugs related to the lack of recognition of biological aging as a disease? Um, that's a question by Ben. Maybe I can say something to that. So um, aging is the cause of diseases. And I think this, this whole argument about is aging a disease or not, I'm, I'm not sure whether this argument is so important. I think what's important is to realize um, that aging is the biggest risk factor for disease, for common chronic disease, from cancer to dementia, all of it. And uh, so we will need to, in, from an ethical perspective, it is absolutely essential that we prevent disease. Because currently, what we're doing currently is that we already nowadays spend half of our resources in the, in the healthcare sector on the elderly because they are sick, not because we prevent them from being sick, but because they are sick. And if we uh, go on with the demographic change, this will even, even further increase this amount of spending. It will explode. It will really bind resources from society. Young people will be, be deprived of resources because we need to treat sick people, more and more and more and more sick people. If, however, we understand aging, and here the C. elegans research we discussed about is an essential part of that. If we understand aging, if we can um, extend healthy aging, and if we can prevent disease by lowering disease risk, then this, I think, is ethically mandated so that we can leave, live in a just society where the young are not overburdened by the, by the old and by where the old can participate in societal life. Uh, and so I think it's a, it's a fundamental uh, ethical standard that we perform aging research, that we invest more resources into understanding aging, um, treating aging. It's not important whether we treat it as disease or not, but that we, um, we target the aging process so we can prevent disease. And that's a paradigm shift in medicine. It's not the medicine of today, but it must be the medicine of the future if we want to have um, a life in a demographically changed society. Absolutely. And, and an interesting point about that is there's this, this debate about aging as a disease or aging other disease. I think the important thing is that aging is a process, a limited number of highly conserved across species and across diseases processes that we can understand and that give rise to all of the age-dependent diseases, right? There's this mindset that all these age-dependent diseases are completely independent. There's cardiovascular disease and neurodegeneration and cancer and sarcopenia, and they're all completely separate. And we need to like work on each of them and throw tons of money on each of these diseases. And the reality of it is that they're all manifestation of aging processes. And we know that they're under very central control and that there are only a limited number of them. We don't know exactly how many, and we don't know which ones are the most important, but we understand that there is a central process called aging and that it can be intervened upon. And so that brings, makes this prevention of all these diseases in one go a feasible target. And I think that's really not appreciated yet, that people understand cancer prevention and cardiovascular disease prevention. But if you talk about manipulating 
anticipating aging, they think you are, you know, talking about science fiction. And really what you're talking about is preventing disease by targeting the things that drive them. And it's not that, you know, radical an idea. Once you understand that there is a central thing called aging, that's a real process that can be manipulated. Awesome. As we're coming up to the end, it's like uh, one more question. And um, as we heard earlier, like C. elegance already have, has been used for a long time. Macrostomum is like more like a recent uh, younger worm that is being used. So what's like the, what's the future of worm research going to hold? I mean, how are the next 20 years of worm research going to look like um, if it, everything goes well? And uh, how would you like to see it to continue? I think we have a lot to discover. We have uh, the the more we we di uh, we you know dip into mechanisms in C. elegans, the more complexity we can uncover. And what we will in, what we will uh, see in the coming years, in my opinion, is that we understand mechanisms of cellular interactions, cellular maintenance, how all these different biological processes, they're affected by aging and they affect aging, how they all interact with each other. And that's hugely complex. So for example, signaling mechanisms have used to, they're still drawn in review articles as these linear things where one arrow goes to another arrow. And this is obviously not how it works. Uh, that's nice if we want to, you know, uh, make things simple for our simple human mind, but this is not how biology in reality works. In reality, it's networks of interactions. And um, I think we will understand that much better. And I'm very happy that people like Jan, for example, enter biology because we need the people also from other fields. I mean, modern molecular biology was founded by people coming from other fields, coming from physics. And uh, I think this is, this is greatly um, advancing the, the capabilities, what we can do um, to understand this whole complexity. And they are... Again, simple models, they are already more complex than, than our human mind uh, can appreciate it at the moment. And I think it will be essential to now understand all these interactions between different pro biological processes. How is all this network, this wiring of different signaling mechanisms under the influence of environmental factors, genotoxic factors, uh, response mechanisms to that, systemic responses, um, immune responses, all how all this interacts. Um, we need a simple model because it's more complex than we currently can fathom. And similarly for the flatworms, I mean, research future is very bright. So we're going to stay for different discoveries for a long time, that's for sure. And not only on aging, and, but also all the regeneration research in the first place, stem cell regulation. Uh, and the source of uh, well information, which then we can look how to be how this can be translated into human situation. So these are like broad directions. Yeah, so many things to explore. Um, I think it's like glorious times to uh, to be a scientist and to be alive. Um, thank you very much, uh, Björn, Eugene, Jan, for your uh, insights. It was great having you on um any last words from your end do you have open positions in your labs anything you want to give to listeners uh, on the way absolutely we always are open to young uh, talents who are interested in pushing forward 
um, uh, the signs of aging um, on many different levels. So we, we do have currently also a postdoc position open. If you're interested, uh, you're, you're welcome to contact me. Um, it, we have a wide variety um, of approaches ranging from cell biology, developmental biology, um, biochemistry, genetics, all the way to bioinformatics and systems biology. Um, it's really this broad interactions and uh, uh, we always like to have, uh, you know, new talents who are really excited about pushing forward the science of aging. Yeah, similar. I mean, the, everyone looking for you, the new talent all the time. And uh, yeah, I also have some opportunities uh, so if interested, contact me. Perfect, great. Then thank you once more. And um, Jan, you wanted to say something? I just wanted to say uh, that that also applies to people and not biologists, right? Maybe even more so for people and not biologists. So if you have uh, an interest in you know, networks and complex systems, so uh, these sort of things and computational skills, I think you'll find that you know that's actually a really sought after resource uh, in, in biology everywhere today. And uh, yeah, if you're if you're thinking of changing from, you know, machine learning and crypto to aging, then uh, then certainly approach any of us. Let's do crypto AI biology. Thank you once <laughs> more. And um, yeah, to the listeners, we will have like uh, more of those panels again in March. All the best. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye.